the long run, passivity won't pay off. It never pays off. If you want a life of meaning and transcendence, you're going to have to move. Aggression doesn't have to be toxic or damaging. Healthy aggression risks. It builds new things. It breaks through barriers. It's the key to living a life that matters. I'm Brian Tome, and this is The Aggressive Life. Well, it's a special day on The Aggressive Life. I hope you brought some cake or some cookies or some milk or maybe even some bourbon because this podcast turns one tomorrow. Yes, it does. Woohoo! That's right. On July 15th, 2019, we released the very first episode of The Aggressive Life. Way back in the good old days, that was before we knew the words coronavirus or before we ever had a Zoom call or before we ever were concerned about flattening the curve. Way back when we started to have a podcast that would help you move. You know, there's a lot of podcasts that want to give you interesting thoughts. I'm, I'm up for interesting thoughts. No problem with interesting thoughts. But this isn't here to give you interesting thoughts. This is here to get you to aggressively do something with your life, to aggressively move off your mark, to aggressively try something you haven't tried, push into an area that haven't you haven't pushed into. That's why this is here. And I, and I hope, I hope over the last year, You've identified a way that you're living differently, a thing you're doing now that you wouldn't have done before, a thing that you're stopped doing. It was a very aggressive move to make that you were mindlessly doing again and again and again and again. And if you have, I know that this has been helpful for you and I hope that you want to be helpful to others. Hey, if you've never rated our podcast and you like it, please do. If you don't like our podcast, do not rate our podcast. Do not just, just stop right now go home. But if you like our podcast, we'd love you to rate it. And we'd love you to leave a review. We'd love you to share it. We'd love to help as many people as possible. It seems small, but those things um, really do help put the podcast in front of new listeners, which helps get new listeners getting more aggressive and taking control of their life. That's what we want to do here, here at The Aggressive Life. So thanks for sticking with us the past year. Big plans for the podcast coming up, but enough of that. Let's talk about my favorite moments my favorite moments of the first year of the aggressive life and in no particular order either, but here's one. How about Peter Goodwin and the bear? This is recorded on location outside Nashville, Tennessee. Peter's become a friend of mine. He's the founder of Groove Life, amazing product I wear on my, on my ring finger all the time. And before becoming an entrepreneur, this guy lived in the Alaskan bush in his own lodge. He built with his own two hands and took people on bear safaris. I guess safaris are in Africa, but you know what I'm talking about. Took people out to kill bears. No other bare hands, but with guns. But man, very, very dangerous. And he talks about how he survived the storm. And I'm not going to ruin it for you. Let's, let's relive it. So anyway, in the hunting world, if you can take out a lot, you know, a certain portion of the males, then the cubs survive and the population is healthier. So, yeah, so we don't just, you know, we're not bloodthirsty just killing anything we see. It's very managed. So Bears fascinate me. They totally fascinate me. Have you had any bear close scares? I've had many, many uh, close calls. Give us a couple. 
I had to sleep inside a dead carcass of a bear once. Oh, come uh, on. You did not. I did. You slept inside of a dead carcass bear. I had to. Oh, you were my the client. dream guest for me. And it was before the, how, how the Revenant this came out. Did you kill this? Was it the Revenant? Was it the, Revenant? the one where Leonardo? Oh, before the Revenant? I was like, that guy, he copied me. What but happened? I think I copied Luke Skywalker because I think he did it back in the 70s. How did this happen? Um, so we were with a client. Um, I was with a client. We were on a 12th day, I think. And we were, it were, we were, you know, when you go bear hunting, it's not like deer hunting in a stand. You drive your four-wheeler up. It's not like hunting in Africa where you're shooting animals out of the back of a Jeep while you're smoking a stogie. You get dropped off in a small bush plane and with a tent, and you're out there for 10 or 12 days. And a lot of times you don't even make it back to your tent at night because you've hiked so far away and it's too dark to get back. So you just, you just bivvy-whack it up, you know, on the side of the mountain there. Um so these guys are uh, that I take are mostly executives uh, because it's an expensive hunt. It's very logistically um, intense, just even the travel. So so we we're on this twelfth day of this hunt and we see a bear. We um, uh, it's a long story, but the, the bear kind of mocks charges. It realizes we're it, it thinks we're another bear because we're rustling around, and then it takes off. We end up shooting the bear. Then um, my client's gun failed. I was able to get one shot off, but we tracked the bear for three hours and the bear knows we're behind it it's backtracking on itself and following doing different routes and i know the bear is going to charge us like i just know it's coming um he would always stop at the tops of these little knolls and wait for us to come from the bottom so anyway we we ended up harvesting that bear uh pretty dramatically he he was waiting and we shot him and my client shot him in the eyeball at about 10 feet oh my gosh and the, the muzzle blast it was getting dark blinded us because the fire came out of the end of the barrel. And then the bear, we didn't know we hit it, but it was silent. You know, it was like, boom, your ears are ringing, you can't see. It's like a flashbang. So we, we finally found him. He, they, he, had, he had harvested him. But that was dark. It was, it was in October, so it was probably getting dark around 7 o'clock. 2 a.m. we finished. So anyway, we, we, uh, it was, we were hypothermic by the time. It was sleeting. It was like 30 two degrees and sleeting and blowing sideways and where we hunted on the alaska peninsula there's no trees it's only uh big bushes called alder alder bushes so you can't make a fire or anything like that so we we had we had to sleep out there we uh ended up getting next to the carcass and then pulling the the uh, the, the skin the bear hide over us and we shivered all night long and so hypothermia you know first wow. stage is you know sh- control uncontrolled sh- shivering and then and you get in the next stage which you stop shivering and and so our whole goal was to stay up and keep shivering it was so miserable uh-huh. um but it was definitely not warm like climb inside and you know <laughs> so warm in here <laughs> i'm gonna put some intestines around my neck <laughs> that'd right, be right. wonderful yeah, right i'd like can i have the liver as my pillow uh, uh Number two, Kathy Lee Gifford and forgiveness. On that same trip to Nashville, stopped in for lunch with a friend who who was with her, TV legend Kathy Lee Gifford. Uh, We ended up having lunch. I had some folks who had podcast equipment inside their car. We ran out, we grabbed it, we slept in the hotel, and we recorded this episode without any notes or previous preparation. And man, there was... There was a serious gold mine that was dropped into the midst of our time together. Let's just hear Kathy Lee as an amazing communicator and uh, the way she touched and challenged many of us. How are you as a forgiver? Are you a good forgiver? I really am. Yeah, when my husband was unfaithful to me, I forgave him the 
instant he asked me. Really? It was instantaneous? Yes, instantaneous. Why? Because God, because I knew how much I'd been forgiven of my own sins. Oh, that's great. I mean, we cannot give mercy unless we understand how much mercy we've been shown. Right. And that's the trouble with the world. God has shown all of us so much mercy, but we were, we withhold it from others. Did you forgive him and then you never thought about it again? No, okay, that's so, impossible. I'm not God. Right, so you He removes it from the east to the west. It's forgotten. Uh, no, no, I've got, I had emotional scars for the rest of our, our marriage and the rest of his life. I did. It was the most devastating thing I've ever gone through uh, because he was the person I loved the most in the whole world. And, uh, you know, the, the, the devastation is commensurate with how much you loved somebody. Well, and it sucks that at that point you're in a career that can't let you work out your stuff privately. I mean, that's, I didn't know you back then, obviously. I've only known you for two meetings, but I've, I've walked with a lot of people who've been through infidelity as a pastor. And gosh, what just sucks. <laughs> you, you, you just couldn't get a break. You couldn't go internal. You couldn't, you couldn't. It was like, I can't imagine the pressure. That was, just, that, was, that was just shitty, man. That was just, yeah. that was just awful. Yeah. I mean, just being in the public eye. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's hard enough alone. Jeez. And then, and, um, yeah. I went to a counselor when I, when I was struggling with... The forgiveness came instantly with Frank. But Frank's attitude is like a lot of men's. Okay, it's over. It didn't mean anything. It was nothing. Well, it's something to the woman. Yeah. It's something to your wife. It's huge. Don't pull that crap on her. It, she didn't mean anything to me. She meant enough for you to, to, to threaten your entire lifetime, your family, your, your marriage, your vows to God, everything. So don't diminish what it meant. It may have been a, a minute in your life. It's now defined mine. Mm. And don't diminish that. Let a woman grieve about it. Let her not rail against you if she's forgiven you. I never did. I never, Frank and I never slept in a different bed. We were never in a different room. Our children never heard an ugly word between us. They were little. They were four and eight. And little people do not deserve big people problems. But my pa- this, this beautiful Turkish man who had counseled Frank and I primarily, I went to see him again. And he said, Kathy, I know you've forgiven him, but now you're... Frank's attitude of that, well, that's, you know, let's just, he expected everything to go back to exactly where it was before. There's work to do. There's trust that has to be rebuilt. It it is hard, hard, hard work. And you got to be willing to do it. And because I was so easy and so quick to forgive Frank, I think he just thought, well, Kathy's, that's the way she is. But I struggled with that. It hurt me. He didn't understand how deeply I was hurt, and that bothered me. So now I'm set back in our process as going forward. And this dear, sweet man looked at me and said, Kathy, maybe the most wise, Solomonic thing anyone's ever said to me. He said, Kathy, if you can't forgive your husband, forgive your children's father. Mm. And I went, oh, I love that guy. Mm. That guy's amazing. Yeah. I got my eyes off me yeah. and onto my children and, and back on a road of, you know what, we're going we're to save this. By the grace of God, we're going to save this. And yeah. Praise God we did. Well, that counsel you have is relevant for women who've been cheated on by their husband. It's relevant for men who've been cheated on by their, by their wife. That and happens too. It sure does. And... You know, when we forgive somebody, what we're doing is we're giving up our right to take vengeance on them. We're not giving up 
a natural healing process that we have to go through because we've been wounded. In fact, you need it. It's important. Mm -hmm. You need to grieve. That's right. Whether it's a death of a relationship, death of a death of trust, death death of um, a romantic longing, uh, all kinds of things. In fact, well, gotta read the book. Number three, Solomon Wilcots and Race, also known as Solomon Wilcots. Back when this podcast was in its infancy, I invited good friend and former NFL athlete turned Emmy award-winning sideline reporter Solomon Wilcots to come on the show. And uh, we talked all kinds of things, including race. Solomon and I have uh, quite different skin tones. And I thought some really healthy things were said on that day. You know, being aggressive, it isn't just about running through a wall, taking right. somebody's head off. In fact, there's obviously very negative forms of aggression. Understand yeah, that right. entirely. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, period. But there's a lot of things that we're not using discretionary energy for to step into something. And I think one of the things is, quite frankly, our our race conversation in our country here. I agree. That's why I'm pushed on this a little bit. I mean, we we know when we see out and out racism and we Mm -hmm. we blow up over, we just we just go go bonkers over when we when we see it. But the underlying issues we're not really willing to talk about and we're not willing to makes most people uncomfortable. It does, it does. It's a it's a very uncomfortable place for people to go. And then when some people attempt to go there, you know, let's face it, people have been criticized, ostracized, and penalized for just saying the wrong thing. Not not that their heart is impure. They just may have said something that offended the the wrong person, and now they're penalized, they're ostracized for it. That doesn't help, right, with the attempt to have an ongoing dialogue and communication. Um, I've heard someone, a good friend, say to me, when you talk about your friends, uh, it may be someone who's of your color but not your kind. And there may be someone who's of your kind but not your color. We all need to be looking for people who are of our kind. I like that. (laughs) We share values that I feel, because we all want the same thing. We want to raise our children to be independent, to be healthy, to be happy. Yep. I mean, when you think about all the things that most of us really do have in common, that's that's mean we are of the same kind. Are we getting better or worse as a culture? I, I think we I think unfortunately we go through these cycles, right? We there's these ebbs and flow um in time from generation to generation where it gets better, then it gets worse. It, it just seems to be this tug of war, but I think unfortunately um, we're worse. I think there's been times when we've why? been better. Why are Why are we worse right now? How, I, you feel that personally as a black man? I, I, the other day, my son and I, we were going into his apartment complex. There was a gentleman driving out and he just started honking. And I was like, what, what did I do? Did I not, was I supposed to stop? Did I? And then I, you know, I was, I wasn't supposed to stop. I kind of just, we were, you know, cruising by. And then when he pulled out and I pulled into the next um, it was sort of parking structure. I pulled in. He flipped me off. I don't know what he shout, what he shouted, but I told my son. I said, "You see that?" I said, "I'm gonna tell you something. We live in a different world. You cannot respond to that behavior. Mm. People are yep. people are taking lives." It was a white They're, guy. 
Yes. Did you interpret it was partially racially there motivated? There was nothing else to infer. There, wow. I didn't cut him off. We didn't nearly almost have an accident. There was nothing. Yeah, I, I, I didn't, because yeah. I was like, did I do something? And my son was like, no, we didn't do anything. And yeah. so my my whole point to that is, um, you know, we we just need to have greater empathy. I think the empathy has been driven out of our culture today yeah. um, to understand other people and have under, other people understand us, to not be so quick to judge, certainly not be so quick to have animus yeah. to someone simply because they appear to be different. See, and that's why I have to trust someone like you who says it's worse because I'm of the dominant culture. I don't know if you know this or not. I'm white. I don't know if you know this. I'm, I'm very white. It, it is awesome to be see, white, I see, must I'm say. T- I will say this. Awesome. I think when people say, I didn't even notice you were black. I'm like, hey, listen, it's okay. You know how some people say, I'm colorblind. I don't oh, see yeah, no right, difference. Right. How about this? How about if we ask you to notice the difference but still notice the similarities? Oh, there you go. See, when yeah. people when people try to take the easy out, I, no, yeah. I don't notice any difference. Well, then you're that kind of being what we call intellectually or emotionally dishonest, right? Totally, <laughs> like, totally. To, here's the real test. And I would suspect that our creator wants us to see the, the total difference and still love. Yes, right. And still love each other. And I've got I've to love you and i got to trust you because as a yeah. white guy, I don't have any stories. I don't have a single story where my race made for a bad day. I don't have a single one. Wow. I know. Wow. I know. I know you say, I, I'll well, get, I'll, there's yeah. no way I can talk to a a, a, a a black man and him to understand that topic. Because yeah. everyone, everyone I know has got multiple stories of how they have problems yeah. because of their skin yeah. color. I have friends, very different who I've had conversations with and I'll talk to them. And then we start to talk about history and we talk, you know, you can't separate, you know, none of us live in a vacuum. Like the present is connected to our past. Right. And our future is connected to our presence. That line in the sand of time, that's what it is. It's, it's all connected. And so when I have conversations with them, they'll say, well, that was back then. How does that affect you? (laughs) So it's kind of like throwing things out. And so, What I really like to help people understand, I said, typically, um, and almost every person that I know, particularly African-American male, who's been stopped by the police. Which is probably every African-American male you know. That's when the rubber meets the road. Yeah. Because we can, like I can live, I can, if you know, if I have enough income, I can live in a neighborhood where there's some buffers. I can surround myself with people who are like me. If I can, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can buffer, right? And never, and then say, well, I don't think that exists. But I'm going to tell you right now, you get pulled over by the cops and it's a real moment. And you see it in the news where how many people are, for whatever reason, whether I'm not blaming that it's the cop's fault or it's the person. And I think it's a situation by situation deal. Sometimes police are provoked. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's in between. I'm not here to really bring up any specific issue. I'm just saying that I've been pulled over before. I know a lot of guys like me been pulled over before. We all have similar stories. And I, the lesson is that you have every black man in this country, when they have a son who is of age and they begin to drive, there's a conversation that has to be had. And when that, if that, I know friends 
And then we, I'll say, have you had the talk with him? Because my son got his license. You had the talk with him? Of course I have. And if someone has it, we would say to them, dude, you're, you're, the you're derelicting your duty is, as a dad. <laughs> a lot of people do not know this talk. What is the talk? The talk is you tell your son, if you are pulled over by the cops, for whatever reason, first thing you do, you put both hands on, on the dashboard. Second thing is you are to be totally respectful. Do you, yes, sir. No, sir. And you do not move your hands. If he asks for license, registration, proof of insurance, it's in the glove box. Do you want to get it or do you want me to get it? I want you to get it. I'm going to now reach for it and I'm going to get it. I'm not armed. I don't have anything, sir. So I'm just doing what you're asking me to do. Hmm. These are critical survival (laughs) survival skills. skills. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, and a bonus as well. <laughs> get, get a couple middle-aged men talking about young men and sparks are going to fly, and it did on this day as well. Okay, so let's you let's be real. You're the guy, you're, you're wanting that life partner. You know she's out there somewhere, but all you're doing is sitting at home playing video games. Not going to happen. Video games, are you? are sitting at home doing <laughs> Tinder and, you know, spanking off. That's what oh, you're doing. Not going to happen. No. And, and, and no, it's not going to come in that in that form. But if you put yourself out there and say, you say, okay, I'm going to go to an event tonight. I'm going to make sure I introduce myself to, you know, someone that I find very interesting. And then you say, but I'm not that good with words. I'm not that courageous. Well, it's time. That's where the aggression comes into play. Yes. It's that time. The, cur- the courage to know that you are not meant to be alone. Yes. You got to understand you're not meant to be alone, right? None of us are meant to be alone. And you have to try and ask somebody out and get to know them. They may say no. They may not want to be around you, but you don't know that unless you ask them. Absolutely. My daughter Absolutely. is about ready to graduate from, from college. She's got one more year left, and uh, she's, ha- she's got a great, great boyfriend. She's, uh, she's with uh, her high school boyfriend, and he's, he's just done a really, really great job with her. And I thought when she got to this big, the, this big state university, ma- massive one, University of Cincinnati, Man, I thought, boy, I don't know what's going to happen with the relationship with this guy because dudes are going to come out of the woodwork after her because my, my daughter's a, a total package. She really is <laughs> on, a, on a bunch of different levels. <laughs> yeah. And man, like not a single dude like asked her out the entire time. Wow. Not a single guy even like coming around and and wondering, are you dating somebody? Not and is there a play? Not a single <laughs> solitary one. I'm like, my word, what what is going on with the male species? You know Have we gotten mind? that passive? Yeah. That yeah. when there's a, a woman that's there. put together well, emotionally, it's spiritually, physically, there. relationally, you don't have the 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 faith. To just have a conversation, like not even a conversation. We are we are so ill-equipped today to do things that everyone used to do because we've gone passive. So I was um, visiting uh, f- some friends down in Miami. This was two years ago. And it just so happened we went down to the beach and it just so happened it was the same time, right around the same time as some of the schools were on spring break. And I said, uh, me and my buddy, we were sitting there. I said, hey, let's let's just watch people. And then here comes these gorgeous young ladies 
They're coming and they're walking toward a group of guys. You could see they're prepping themselves to, you know, hoping the guys say hello. And these guys, everyone's looking at their phone oh, as man. they're walking. Gosh. They're, I mean, they're pretending to be Gosh. preoccupied. Uh. So they, just to avoid the pressure man. of having to be the first one to say, hello, young ladies, how you girls doing? Oh, they, they didn't have it. And then I watched wow. group after group of young, I call them boys, but young men. <laughs> And I and so finally I was like, ah, oh, I've seen enough. And so I went down in one group. I said, Hey man, you guys come here. I said, Do you see those young ladies? You know why they're looking back? They're looking back at you. Because you guys just walked by them. You didn't even say hello. You didn't tell them how pretty they are, how lovely their hair may look. You didn't ask them, Hey, are you in school? What school do you go to? What are you studying in school? What are your aspirations? There are a lot of things you could have said. Unbelievable. I said, where, where? I said, where's the courage? Where's the... Hey, ladies, hey, ladies, ladies, let me tell you right now, hey, ladies, let, uh, uh, on behalf of the male species, let me apologize. I apologize. Let me apologize. I don't know what's happening with my species. Ladies, I'm sorry. You deserve more. I, I don't oh, get it. My. And then out of all the guys, let me see all the guys. Hey, guys, let me tell you, let me tell you something, let me tell you something. The greatest thing you will be able to do in your life, if you want maximum impact, is have a teammate. Solomon had teammates in the NFL. He went on and off with. On, If you can find a teammate, i.e. marriage for the rest of your That's life, right. you will be mind-blown how much your life will accelerate. And then here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is so, this is so huge. Because all the other weenie boys around you or look at their phones, you literally have the pick of the crop. You don't have to be the best-looking guy any longer. No. You don't have to be the best-built guy any longer. No. You don't have to be the funniest guy any longer. No. You don't even need Which to have helps. the best— <laughs> It does. You don't even need to have the best job prospects any longer. It helps, all but you, you don't. <laughs> all you need to do is look them in the eye it, and start a conversation, right. and you can woo them because nobody else will, and your life is set up. Number four, Michael Chandler's 500-day losing streak. Michael Chandler, he's an MMA champion. He's achieved the highest levels of success within his sport, and yet he keeps pushing forward. Just watch his Instagram videos. I don't know how in the world he keeps doing and pushing what he does with his body. Pretty, pretty impressive. And he went through a deep drought in his career. He went 688 days without a win, and his motivation was still there. He still had to figure out how to motivate himself every single day to keep going, to keep working out. It's one of the more aggressive stories and vulnerable stories I've gotten to share on this podcast. Let's listen to him. That's the hardest part about mixed martial arts is losing a fight. Right. Looking looking as if every single person looks at you like a you know a loser. Because you are a loser. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm seriously, I lose too. I have bad sermons or something like that, but yeah. I'm not on my back bleeding mm-hmm. with the whole that, that's gotta be terrifying, yeah. brother. And the and the MMA media, just like the the Christian media, kind of will write a little bit of something about it and say, Oh, he's falling off. Hey, you know, because I, I came into this sport fast, hard. You know, I had the opportunity to I fought a tournament. I thought fought three fights in three months. Uh March, April, May of 2011. Then I fought again in November of 2011. So I fought six fights in a 13-month period to get to the world title and beat a guy named Eddie Alvarez, who was number three in the world at the time. And so I shot like a rocket ship to the top. And then, um, you know, from then on, I've had ups and downs and 
battled back from losses, but I've, I've, I've realized that every single person that I've ever looked up to, every single person that you look up to and idolize and, and, and want to be like, want to emulate, they have been a failure at one so point or, or another. Coach us, coach us, Michael, if you've, uh, when, when you failed and you had how many losses in a row? Three, three, five, three losses three in a row, 688 row. days without a win. Okay, so I know we've got listeners mm-hmm. who it's been 688 days without a win. Yes, sir. Our marriage has been limping for a long, long time. We've had a failure that everyone knows about that just crushed us. We've, we've been losing accounts left and right. We've been in credit card debt because of stupid decisions that we've made. Um, we're, we're, we're at loss because something wiped us out physically because it was in our DNA and we had no, I, oh, no idea it was, it was there. Uh, we've lost our job because we said something stupid. We did. There, there's there's a lot of people who have lost and are losing right now. Mm-hmm. Help us. What do we do when we're on our back? You know, I think it's so much of an inside job. The enemy really is the inner me most of the time. You know, um, and that and that really has been the problem because because you can you, we're all going to have those great days. We're all going to have those great seasons of life. But without without the without falling down in the valley, without getting kicked in our teeth and falling down and having to pull, pull ourselves back up, there there is no um, there is no growth. You know, being able to throw yourself into the battle. So um, taking ownership for that loss, I think the biggest problem we do we have as as men is is we do have the ego of. Um, not admitting our faults, not saying sorry when we need to say sorry, not not showing ourselves enough grace. You know, we see so many people fail and we think they failed because it was bad circumstances. Whenever we fail, it's because we're losers, right? That's one of the hardest things that I had to, that I had to overcome. I already came from a a uh, a small a small minded thinking mindset as I grew up that um, that I really had to find a way to give myself permission to be the best. You know, we, we all, we find all these reasons why we should lose and find all these reasons why we should fall short and all these reasons why we shouldn't succeed, but give yourself permission to be successful, you know? Um, and the only thing worse than, the only thing worse than failing is, is winning and realizing that the winning isn't going to make you happy. You know, the only thing worse than, than bouncing off the bottom after you lose is making it to the top, looking around and realizing that wasn't enough. So the do in your life, what you're going to do, what, what you're going to portray to the world, that, that task, that, that platform of what you have is going to be nothing if you don't know exactly what, what you are, who you are, whose you are, and what you stand for. Um, so really, you know, for me, I hire, I've hired a mental coach. Um, I really have realized that in my sport, or whoever's listened to this in their business, in their in their marriage, um, there are so many things that are created equal. In mixed martial arts, we are all great athletes. We're all in shape. We all punch hard. We all we all we all know how to fight. But it's it's the man who's willing to push harder. Not not the man who's willing to push the hardest, but push the hardest after it gets painful. Mm-hmm. That is usually going to be the victor. And whenever, and also the man who believes him in himself after things have gone wrong. Number five, Jeff Ruby confronts O.J. Simpson. My day job and life are in Cincinnati, Ohio, and around these parts. Jeff Ruby is a, is a big deal. He owns some of the finest dining establishments in our city, and he is a local legend. Getting him on the podcast was a, was a huge, huge win in the early days, and his episode still remains one of the highest listened to. And my favorite part of the episode was 
giving him a question that wasn't anywhere on the notes. I gave him a softball to recount the time when he confronted O.J. Simpson in his restaurant. Oh, how would you call it? Following his trial of the century. And I learned things I did not know. Now, many of our listeners in cities that are outside of Cincinnati may have never heard your name before, but I'm going to talk about something. We're going to talk about something now that they're going to go, oh, I know that guy. It was, for me, just a classic example of using your power, using your influence, doing something that other people would be afraid to do. And I don't even know if you know I'm going to ask you, but take us way back. You already know. know. O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson, he gets acquitted, comes into one of your restaurants, and what happens? Well, it's the night before the derby. It's our first derby. And the place is packed. I mean, really packed. And my manager, the GM, had two armed, uniformed Louisville policemen working at the entrance to make sure, you know. Plus, there was a cover charge just to come in if you weren't having dinner. And it was all new to us. So the place was packed. I got a GM. We've been open about 10 months. But this is our first derby. And I can't find a place to sit down. So I have to go up the steps of the stage, sit on a corner of the stage, the band's playing because that's the only place I could sit. So I sat on the stage in a corner. No one could see me there. And I got Jack Daniels and I got my uh, Ortero Fuente cigar. Some guy comes up, it's all giddy. Hey, OJ's here. He, was, he thought that was great. Now, I had known OJ because over the years he'd been to my places. Been to the waterfront, we've had drinks, took a picture at the precinct. I, I got to know O.J. He was a nice guy. I liked him and everything. I'm sitting there. Now he's murdered people, though. And he's written a book, and he's got an $850,000 advance. Here's how I did it. Here's how I murdered the mother of my child, of my children, and another kid who had just happened to be a busboy at a restaurant. They were eating. Here's how I did it. And he gets paid eight hundred fifty advance. And, of course, I, I didn't want him walking around like— uh, He's he's still a, cel- a celebrity. He's still a star. He's still being, hey, take a photo, OJ. Take a, can I have your autograph? So this is after the murders. You know, the, he's been you know found not guilty. Plus, he's been doing other stuff since then and getting away with it, like beating up another woman. Uh, and then she said, no, nothing happened. He's gotten away with a lot since then, and he's flaunting it. And all I can think of in my mind is the face that keeps popping up on TV years later of Fred Goldman when that verdict came down with her, sitting next to his daughter, Kim. And I've, I've just, and the strength this man has had, he won the civil suit, but he never got a dollar for that. But he did it, for, you know, the reason to get some kind of justice. And I can only have this guy's head, this face, this image, that poor man, you know, and, and the rest of them. So now I'm asking people, I can't make up my mind. Should I, what should I do? So I always have, I have... You're asking people who are sitting around you on the stage? Nope. I'm asking three parts of me. I always, when I make a decision, I check with three parts of me. My heart, my gut, and my brain. I got to get two votes, okay? So, what do I do? Do I throw him out or not? And my heart said, throw him out. Because I'm thinking of Fred Goldman and the Brown family and what they've been through. And I don't want this guy... I don't want this guy in here signing and taking pictures. And, and I, I'm going to do it for Fred Goldman, who I've never met. My brain says, I'm not voting. My brain abstained. 
So now I still got to get a, a second vote because two out of three gives me my decision. Oh. And my gut won't decide either. What is my gut telling me? Do I do this? My brain, I went back to my brain. My brain won't tell me if this is smart or stupid. And it never to this day voted. I got to wait on my gut because my heart said, do it. Throw him out. My gut won't vote. So finally, after three or four sips of that Jack Daniels and three or four puffs of that cigar, my gut said, throw him out. Boom. That was it. I had the second vote. My brain would not get involved. So... Your brain wouldn't get involved because you were having a hard time juggling he used to be my friend kind of thing? No, or? no, no. I never considered him a friend. I knew him. I liked him. We took pictures together. But my brain is, is this going to backfire where people are going to be so upset okay. that I threw out superstar O.J. Simpson, okay? And, and you know what? Then you got the fact that he's black, which that never came into my mind. The brain never thought about it. The brain thought, are people going to hate you for this? You, you've got 500 people in the restaurant. What are they going to do? Are they going to start throwing stuff at me for throwing out O.J. Simpson? He's still a hero. Are people going to like this or not that I've thrown out a superstar? Okay, is that going to hurt my business and me? And I didn't, so the brain didn't vote. It was a, for the heart and gut. So now I got to find him. Nobody knows where he is. I'm asking people, where's O.J.? And finally one says, oh, he's in the Churchill room. You got a room back there. I go back there, and there's a few different tables there, people. And there's a table. OJ's sitting there, and nobody else is at the table. Mm. And he's looking at me, and I walked in. And I didn't know this, but my GM could tell I was upset about something by the way I was storing back to the, to the Churchill room. He followed me. I didn't even know he was following. And I looked at OJ, and he looked at me, and I said, I'm not serving you. And to my surprise, and he didn't, he just stood there. He just sat there. And then finally, my manager says, I went like an umpire, you're out, uh, motion with my thumb and my arm, which my manager saw that from behind. And he just kept looking at me. And I walked out the door, because that was a kind of a private room or it could be public, there was a door there. And he comes out of the room, walks down the hallway, he sees me, in the, just outside the door and he said uh, I understand Do, is it okay if I find the rest of my party I gotta tell him we gotta leave they're all in here somewhere he was so but he recognized me he knew from the past mm. and I think that was what it was so he was so nice about it I damn near changed my mind <laughs> and and I almost shook his hand <laughs> or patted him and thank you but I didn't mm. so I didn't know if it was smart or not, we had death threats, and I did a lot of well, death threats. Well, I thought and all was that. so but, impressive about that. Looking back on that, but it turned that, out to be, you know, good. It did turn out to be good, but I don't want anyone to lose the fact that that was an amazingly gutsy call. When you made that call, there was a a primal yes that went up from America because up to that point, no one had taken a stand on anything. You had people who were in the news media, giving their opinions on, on TV, but you're the first guy that stepped out and did something that could really, really hurt you. That's you know what interesting. I mean? I said, you know Bill Hemmer on Fox News? Yes. He's an elder kid from Cincinnati, elder high school. So he calls me. They were all, all the media was calling me. I said, Bill, why is this such a big deal? He said, because you're the first one that's had the courage that's to right. do it. He's never been told to leave a business since those murders, since that's the right. verdict. You are the first and only one that's ever done it. Mm. 
Number six, Michael Jr.'s Secret to Success. One of the funnest and funniest hours I spent the last year was on an episode with comedian Michael Jr. Uh, he came to Crossroads, the church that I lead, and did a great job preaching that weekend. It was amazing. When I heard what he did, I knew I wanted to talk to him more. And so we got him on the podcast. And it was it was funny for sure, because he's he's very funny. But man, it was insightful. It really helped me as a communicator to perform at a higher level. And uh, we'd be well served to hear him talk about that again. When I first started doing comedy, it was so weird. I actually completely, for the first maybe 14 years or so, I completely lost my taste for watching comedy. Hmm. Like I, I would be at the club performing in Los Angeles or New York, and as soon as I was done with my set, I would get there right before my set, and then I would leave right after my set. And it, it was, and I couldn't understand it. Meaning, I wouldn't watch any other performers. It was really weird for a while. Like I just couldn't. And it wasn't anything particular. It wasn't any language stuff because I'm okay with that. Like I would, I'd never um, elbow rub at the clubs. And I realized what was happening is I was able to fully develop my own voice, like fully. Hmm. Um, if you look closely right now, any comedian, well, it depends on their age. But you can actually, if you look close enough, because now I really like watching comedy, I can actually tell them who their biggest influences were based off their comedy style. But I'm able right now to do comedy that really isn't like anyone else's. I'm not necessarily saying it's funnier, but my perspective is completely different, especially I had a a moment that kind of changed everything outside of a club in Los Angeles. And I'll just pause and you can ask me what that moment was. Have you ever had a moment that just changed everything for you? Oh, uh, no, man. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You, so, are, yeah. you are a bad guest. You're yeah. a bad guest. You're <laughs> setting me up to look bad. The whole reason podcast people like me have people like you is because we want to look good. We want to look impressive. And you're not helping yeah. the script, man. Come on. Oh. Make me look good. You know what? That is amazing question you just asked yeah I, I, like that's amazing first of all there is a moment i don't know how you knew there was a moment but yes there actually was so as a comedian you know what you want to do really is get laughs from people like it's pretty easy math it's an easy business but i'm outside this club in los angeles and uh right before i got on stage i had like this change in mindset like i felt like a shift took place it was really it was clearly depending on what platform i'm on i, I clearly know it was god speaking to me saying, um, instead of trying to get laughs from people, I should go up there and give them an opportunity to laugh. Mm. And for a lot of people, that might be a little bitty change, but for me, it was a huge shift. So that same night, I went up on stage at that club in Los Angeles, and I, I didn't do a joke for probably the first 16 seconds or so. Instead, I just kind of waited. I kind of talked to the audience, and the show was so much better because mm. it was – and what I realized is when you have a gift to offer someone, when you knock on their door, you don't hand it to them immediately. You wait until you're invited in. Mm. You assess the situation. When the time is right, you present the gift. So I did the show. It was great. We had, I mean, it was so relaxing because the audience can, what I've learned is the audience can kind of tell collectively when you're trying to get something from them. Mm. Actually, it puts them in more control. So as soon as I said, how can I give, it changed and I leave the club that night, and I remember we were taking pictures and doing autographs, and I'm outside in front of the club, and uh, I look across the street, and this is a really nice area. I look across the street, and I saw a homeless guy. 
I had never seen a homeless guy outside this club before, ever. But that doesn't mean he wasn't there before. That just means before I was asking the question, how can I get laughs from people? So why would I even notice a homeless guy? When I asked a different question, I started getting a different answer. I see this guy, and my first thought was, what about him? How could I give him an opportunity to laugh? And then it just kind of shook me a little bit. And then probably four days later after asking that question, there was a lady in one of my autograph lines at a show and she said the words to me. She said, you know, I run a homeless shelter and I'm wondering if you've ever considered doing comedy for the homeless. And I said to her, nope, I never crossed my mind before. You better back up, lady, because I was scared. Like, what does that look like? But then I caught her up a few days later and I said, hey, let's, you know, what should this look like? And I actually went, we went down to Skid Row and did my first event at a comedy at a homeless shelter. And we've done a bunch of them since. We do prisons, we use children's facilities. Because in my thought process is to make laughter commonplace in uncommon places. Like that's where I want to also do comedy. So whenever we're doing a big show, we always try to stop in and do comedy at those places. I, in fact, I founded a, a nonprofit to, to help us do exactly that. That's inspiring. And I, I love your perspective on how, how did you put it? Uh, I, I have to struggle with whether or not to get laughs or give people the opportunity to laugh. You said something like that. that I find a similar yeah. thing whenever I'm speaking someplace. I've got to have this gut check at the last minute, and, and I wish I did this more often, and I wish I did it earlier in my career. I just didn't. There's a fine line between wanting to perform well because you you want to feel the satisfaction of a job well done. There's a line between that and wanting to perform well so that people are genuinely helped. And that sounds like not big of a deal, but it's a huge deal, I think, in what the audience smells. Yeah, it's huge because it's really a heart check, meaning the scary part about that is nobody really knows the answer until, I mean, except as well as you know the answer. So one of the things that I say sometimes to remind myself of this is if I need to fall on my face on stage and not be funny at all, and in some way it can be used to help somebody, I'm literally willing to do that. In fact, when you take that perspective, it allows you, because a lot of my comedian friends will be like, dude, how you doing comedy at a homeless shelter? What if they don't laugh? And immediately I'm like, I'm not there to get laughs, is the thought that I have. I'm there to give them an opportunity to laugh. So even if I, and when you have a gift for someone, it's not about, it's not about how many people want it. It's about how much somebody else needs it. Yeah. So even if I do a homeless shelter and no one laughs, which was really the case at that first shelter for the first 15 minutes, at least I'm expressing love. I'm literally standing on stage giving to these people. Like, and if, if they have to laugh in order for me to feel fulfilled, then that means I wasn't really there for them. I was there for myself. Well, boys and girls, it's been a fun ride the past year, but more than that, I hope that you have found a way to move. I really do hope that you've not just had a podcast that's enabled you to consume and whittle away your drive time and just get your mind on something different. I hope that this is a podcast that's caused you to live your life differently. There's enough people giving ideas out there. There's enough people giving philosophies. The vision of this podcast is to get you to move, to get you to do something different, to get you to be aggressive and going after something you might not have done otherwise. So that's what we're about. I'm about you and I'm about you having a better life 
and pushing forward. So if you haven't given us a rating yet, we'd love to have you give a rating and share. It would be great because every person that we can get in front of is a person we hopefully can make a better version of themselves. We'll see you back on August 4th with new episodes of The Aggressive Life. We'll see you then. Hey, thanks for listening. For more aggressive living, head over to bryantome.com. Get signed up for the mailing list to get regular shots of positive aggression sent straight to your inbox. And while you're there, you can also find articles, podcasts, and books. I'm also active on Instagram. Search Brian Tome. Special thanks to the band judges for the music. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.